Welcome to the podcast dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. Today, we are going to talk all about off seasons, but we're going to talk about like, instead of just like these empirical recommendations or like, you know, that sort of thing. We're going deep into science in terms of what science says we should do and not do for an off season. We're also going to talk about why you taste blood during hard efforts, tons of other stuff. It's going to be great. We have LEL Apparel and Ventum Cycling's Ivy Adrain. What's up? Hi, What's I'm up, Jonathan. Buddy? I almost well, called you Ventum. But I'm Ventum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am bike. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you're going to get into the science of off season and I'm just going to support you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> With, you know, yeah. Good team. <laughs> Good team. Yeah. yeah. Fist bump. Um, but we got a lot of people submitting questions, which you can do that, by the way, at trainerroad.com slash podcast. You can submit your questions every week. That's how this podcast continues. Uh, the closest thing to its quote funding would be that you sending in those questions, you rating the podcast, liking this video. If you see it on YouTube, sharing it with other people, it'd be huge. Lots of questions came in this week and they came in from people asking about like, cause they're going back to training indoors because of weather in the Northern hemisphere. Lots of folks doing that. So it would be number one, we've covered a lot of this information in the past. So seasoned listeners, I don't want you to have to tune out. We're going to make this really quick. And then number two, it was also like broad and wide reaching topics that were all more or less kind of similar, just the same. So a lot of people asking, what do I do when my power doesn't match? Like I just went back inside to do my, to do my first workout inside. And oh my gosh, it's so hard. Yeah. It's, uh, Ivy, you, you know ahead. what, while we have talked about off seasons before, um, I think long before I joined trainer road and, you know, I think just as athletes, we've had many, many off seasons, but I feel like every time I record a podcast and have these dialogues with other hosts or talk to other athletes, like I'm 15 years into my career now and I still le learn new approaches from, you know, athletes that are building upon and kind of challenging what we thought worked before. And now there's science that you're going to get into that kind of, I guess, makes it more concrete what we know we should change or helps to kind of evolve and change those narratives about what we think about training, you know? Um, so don't fast forward just because you think you know <laughs> how to off season. <laughs> well, we'll fast forward through the indoor stuff and then we'll get into the, uh, to the, yeah, off you can skip stuff. ahead. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the indoor stuff and, and to that point too, there's new listeners all the time finding the podcast, tons of them all the time, of course. So but okay, if you're riding inside and you're just going back to inside and you haven't done it in a long time or you're new to it, yes, it might feel harder to hit your power targets inside. However, believe it or not, there are people that are on the opposite side of things. They find it easier to hit their power numbers inside. In other words, your mileage will vary for sure. Not just may, but will. But at the same time, I am, so I'm personally a testament of this and many other athletes around the world are a testament to the fact that if you optimize your setup and you spend more time training indoors, eventually it'll become the same. And for me, riding inside or outside, it's the same. But yes, when I haven't ridden inside for a long time and go outside, it gets harder. Also, when I haven't ridden outside for a long time and I go outside, it's uniquely hard in different ways too. But over time, it all becomes more or less the same. So number one, make it colder than you think in the room. Number two, get more airflow than you think. If you have one fan on you, it might not be enough. If you have just a normal fan, it's probably certainly not enough. Get one of those Lasco Performance Series fans. And we should have bought stock in Lasco years ago because mm. the amount of people that have bought those fans. Um, but they're, it's, it's a game changer, like Nate said a few weeks ago. 
Uh, bring your own entertainment. Make sure that you have things to be able to stay focused and entertained. Music, whatever you want to bring, movies, shows, watch racing, uh, anything else, virtual platforms, you can bring it all in, okay? Uh, maybe get new equipment if it excites you as well. So you could, if, I don't think smart trainers have really improved much in the past little bit, so this isn't pressure to go buy a new one. But man, if it's something where like, now that you have something new, it gets you excited to do it, then that is worth it, right? It's kind of like the placebo effect in the sense that if it's uh, if it's not having any concrete change within your body, but it is making you more motivated to do something or believing in yourself more, that is concrete in and of itself. And mm-hmm. that will make you better. If you need a disco ball in your training zone to get you excited about it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Simon and I just went to Legoland a little while ago and they have those in the elevators. They pop down. And they like, you know, sparkle and do all that what? stuff. And it's like, and music comes on every time you get in the elevator. So yeah, maybe there's something to that. Yeah. So I'm go. shout out to Legoland. Uh, to parents. Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's just like one of the best mom. parts of having kids. You get to be a kid again. So, okay. Then the power part thing, like, don't worry if it's different at first, that's normal. It will get better as you increase cooling, as you do that sort of thing. Make sure that you're fueling the workouts like you would if you're outside it could be good to start out with some tempo and sweet spot stuff and then shorter rather than longer intervals. If that means that like keeping your same, if you look at workout alternates and you have a workout that you're going to do and you're using train a road, you can find one that's a similar level. It might be slightly higher in intensity. It might be shorter, but at first that might be better to do uh, just because the longer ones, you accumulate more heat uh, when you're doing those longer, more consistent efforts. And it's harder to shed that heat indoors and that can make an effort feel much tougher. So so those are the things that I would say in terms of like indoor with your power being different, that sort of thing. Ivy, I don't know if you have anything else to add on just like folks going back inside before we get into off season talk. Yeah. Apart from the equipment aspect and things we can do to make our setup, you know, optimized to make you want to go right indoors. I think something I'm going to try this year that's helped my approach in outdoor training is to have a more strict routine in terms of timing. And I'm just trying to think about and everyone should think about the things that not necessarily would make indoor training better, but the things that keep you from training indoors and outdoors. Like what are the things that make it that much harder for you to just get on the bike? And for me, a lot of times I, if I didn't say like, okay, I'm going to wake up at this time and eat at this time and then get on the trainer at this time or go do my workout at this time. So that is optimized for nutrition and before I let the day like get away from me. And if I just say, I'm going to train this afternoon, my day absolutely spirals, yeah. you know? And then <laughs> same, <I'll, laughs> same. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And all of a sudden there's just like, it just allows more room and more space for you to think of the things that you should be doing. Uh, this afternoon becomes 7 p.m. Exactly. Maybe, if it happens at all. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And how tired you are by the time you get to that, you know, Let's say you can figure it out by four or five and you're like, shoot, I meant to ride way earlier. Um, And all this like work stuff came up. And so now it's like five and I'm finally getting on the bike. And then you realize like, whoops, but I didn't eat since lunch at 1130. I can't go do a hard workout now. Maybe I should eat now. And then in a couple (laughs) hours, I'll get on the trainer instead. (laughs) Oh, this is so relatable. (laughs) And just, yeah. yeah. And so I think that if I, if I just you know, stuck to a routine instead this winter when I, when I know I'm going to ride on the trainer and say, okay, I'm going to eat breakfast at this time and plan on getting on the trainer, you know, two or three hours later and make sure that, you know, 
I communicate with my colleagues and make sure that I block that time out for meetings or anything that pops up, then nothing will be able to distract me from that. Yes. You know, that's the way to do it. I I find two things that really help with that too, Ivy. Number one, mixing my bottles beforehand Mm. Mm -hmm. and I do it like hours before and I keep them in the fridge and that just makes me feel like I've already started the process to, Mm -hmm. to start my ride. So I can't derail it. Like it's already started, right? Like that preparation process. And then I make like my meal beforehand. It comes at a specific time because of that. And that's also like, well, I did this because this is me starting my ride. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm not going to ride for two hours, two and a half hours after that, it's like, it's all part of it. And then it makes it feel like, like you said, if it's scheduled and everything else. And then if I do those two things, that really helps. Also anything I might lose, like lose track of or misplace that could stop me from riding I have them laid out in a designated place. Mm-hmm. It's like my shoes, I have a cabinet in my garage where my shoes go. That's exactly where they go and they don't go anywhere else, mm-hmm. right? And then for a, the morning or the day before, I make sure I have a set of bibs. It's ready to use for the trainer. If you are going to use a jersey, which honestly, if you're training inside, you don't need to wear a jersey. Um, if you're a guy, you can wear a base layer if you want, but honestly, you probably don't need to. Um, if you're a woman training inside, just, you know, sports bra and your bibs is totally normal. Don't feel like you have to wear your full kit just to mm-hmm. ride indoors. But if you have those things already like there and in their place, man, that little, those little details make up, make a huge difference because Sometimes, like you said, everything is fighting against you and it's just the one straw that breaks the camel's back is the fact that you can't find your base layer or you can't find your shoes or your socks or whatever it is. And then as a result, it ends up pushing you over the edge and you skip the workout. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, this is super good advice. Especially when you have that designated time, right? And you're like, I only have an hour to do this workout. And then if you're not prepared in the ways that in which you just mentioned, you know, if I'm, if like, man, by the time I find my shoes, put my bike on the trainer, find some gels, like get some fresh towels for sweating, like all that stuff. By the time I get all set up, I'm going to have lost 20 minutes of the workout and I'm only going to ride for 30 or 40 minutes. Like why bother? You know? Yes. Yeah, so exactly. Having yeah. all that Planning stuff ahead. That routine. Uh, Good call, Ivy. So if you're training indoors, let us know what you have found to help you most and then do it in the comments on the YouTube video. If you're listening to this, go find the YouTube video and we can crowdsource some great information. So let us know what you find helps you be most consistent or helps you have the best training experience when you're riding inside. Let us know. Okay. Rob's question. What does or should an effective end of season or off season break look like? As someone who has been using, only been using Trainer Road for less than two years, I've seen consistent progress and following my last race of the season at the beginning of next month, I'm already chomping at the bit to move into the next block of training and keep improving. I feel this. I get really excited about the improvements and I don't want to let them go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm planning a week of totally off the bike time following my final race, but I'm wondering if I should do more. Uh, read quote less or potentially schedule additional off weeks over the winter off season. Love the podcast and keep up the great work. Ivy, you've been doing this for longer than I have and like at a lot of different levels, right? So what are your off-season recommendations? Uh, well, I've certainly made plenty of mistakes in my off-season for sure. <laughs> <laughs> mistakes uh, make recommendations. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, and I think it depends so much upon motivation. So like Rob sounds super motivated, right? And in the past, if I 
wasn't super motivated and still left myself to a shorter off season, it didn't ultimately help me, you know? And so for someone like Rob, I would be curious if, you know, you're super motivated, if you, you know, I don't think you should be doing structured training during that week off, but if you're motivated and ready to get back to it, why should you take more than a week, you know? And in terms of the mistakes that I've made in the past, I wish that I had taken shorter off seasons. I, I think it's just easy for me to, when the weather's bad outside and I take that first week off and then I'm supposed to find motivation to get on the trainer when that's not, you know, really why I love riding and training. Like I like being outside. And so the ways in which I would extend my off season, I would have a week off or 10 days off. And then when ramping back into it, it would be so much easier for me to be like, and eh, like, it's just, I'm just getting started. Like, it's just the very beginning of base. Like, I don't really have to do all that or like I could take an extra day off because I'm not motivated yet. And when I did that, it just kind of, I spiraled for sure. <laughs> and it turned into weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then when I decided to, when I, when it was like, whoops, clock's ticking, I should actually get serious. It is just so miserable. Like it's such a shock to the system and so painful. And I wonder if I just would have taken a week off and actually started, you know, sticking to a consistent schedule when I got started again. I wonder how less miserable those initial really hard workouts would have been if I would have just, you know, stuck to it a little bit better. Yeah. We, we have a blog post that you can find on our blog. Uh, I'll link to it in the description below. And it talks about how you lose different types of fitness and at what time scale you lose that fitness and fitness does go away rather quickly. It can come back and you know, your results will vary for sure in terms of how quickly it will come back for you. If you're more experienced and you have a greater, like you have a many years of structured training and you've been at high levels of performance, it will probably come back faster than if you don't we return back to that kind of like baseline rather quickly because it's very expensive for our bodies to be, to be constantly rebuilding, repairing and getting stronger and faster as a result of training. That's all a very expensive process. So our body's like, heck, I don't have to maintain all this muscle. I don't have to maintain all the things that I've been working on. Mm. That's costly. I'll drop it back. So, <laughs> so to your point, Ivy, there's actually a study and there's limited research, um, believe it or not on the effects of off seasons and lengths on cyclists and <laughs> seeing how it goes. So there's bigger weird. problems to solve in the world, <laughs> it seems. Um, but at the same time, there, is, there are some studies on it, which is pretty cool. There's a 2016 observational study by Maldonado uh, Martin and colleagues, and it backs up your experience, Ivy. Uh, it's called Effects of Long-Term Training Cessation in Young Top-Level Road Cyclists. And they had 10 young male cyclists observed during five weeks off. These cyclists all came from a specific team. They were around 20 years old was the average age. So these are young bucks, right? And fit folks too. I believe that they had an average VO2 max of 72. So <clears throat> these are very strong cyclists. Um, the team was in Durango. Was the team in Durango, Colorado? No, I'm <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> seems like there is. Uh, perhaps if Durango is a city in Spain, I don't know, but it's it seems like a Spanish study. So they took these athletes and then they basically just observed them during five weeks off. They measured body composition, VO2 max, three minute max power, blood lactate, red blood cell count, hemoglobin, hematocrit, all those things. And they measured them before and after. So the context is important here. They were racing and doing their peak season. And then after the end of their peak season, they took five weeks off. Okay. And during these five weeks, they measured them before and then after. 
And what they found very logically was modestly, modestly unfavorable outcomes in all parameters, right? Like they got slower as a result of this. And that's one thing that I think that it's really important. All studies that I've seen have shown this, that if time off results in decreases in performance, that's how it goes. And there's a pressure that I feel every year, Ivy, where I'm like, I don't want to let go because I, I typically have this like, you know, I peak and then I have these kind of like fun little efforts or fun little races that I'll do that I'm not training specifically for them. I'll be doing low volume training and I'll just be mixing in more unstructured riding. And when I do that, I kind of naturally go into this weird taper. I know I've tapered for my peak event, but then after that, I probably dropped my training volume by like 40, 50%, right? And all I'm doing is these shorter, harder things. So it's, it's like I'm continuing a taper. And I'm always surprised by the amount of performance I could get for my body. <laughs> so I get to the point where I'm like, hmm, maybe if I start from here, I'll be super fit and not take any time off. And usually, as you can hear through the microphone, I get struck down with like the sickness of all sicknesses. And then, you know, uh, just with kids in school and such. And then uh, I reset and I'm forced to reset and take a lot of time off. Mm -hmm. But there is this temptation every year to not want to do that, you know, but and science, while science does back up that it makes us slower, I don't think it's something that we actually have to worry about a whole lot. But there is a study that kind of counter, counteracts that. So there was a 2014 study by Ronestad and colleagues, and it had 13 subjects divided into two groups for eight weeks. These, they put them into two groups, high intensity and then low intensity. Both of them did a lot of endurance, or just did 40% uh, of the training load they were doing prior and both of them did it predominantly endurance work. The high intensity group just did one session per week. And it was either five by six minutes or six oh, by five uh, minutes. Yeah, real hard. Um, <laughs> yeah, seriously. And what they did is they then compared results from baseline, basically like before your before taking time off to after taking time off. Then they also had them just like continue training after that and followed up with them again. But what they found is that when you're talking about before and after this quote off season that they had, which was eight weeks long, by the way, that the low intensity group just did low intensity stuff at 40% of their training volume and the high intensity group did low intensity, but just that one hard session per week. So they did that for eight weeks. Um, power at four millimolar of lactate, um, so in other words, like typical, like what they do for like LT1, LT2, these sort of measurements, like four millimoles is a common one rife with problems measuring at four, but just the same. They measured that and there was of an increase in the high intensity group going up 9% and a decrease of dropping almost 3% uh, for the people that just did low intensity. For fractional utilization at that same amount of lactate, in other words, like how much fat were you using versus how much or glucose or glycogen were you using? Uh, once again, the high intensity group improved seven point or seven uh, percent, and then the low intensity group dropped almost three percent. And then they did a forty minute TT, and the high intensity group increased almost seven percent, while the low intensity group increased just one point nine percent. And this is also backed up by a study by Almquist in twenty twenty, kind of a similar design, um, but they just had them do three by these like uh, these bouts of 30 second sprints. So common or similar to the sprint intensity training video, which I'll link down to below that we've done. And they just did one of those sessions per week. And they also saw similar things. So like there's research to back up the fact that during your off season quote, you can do hard things and still improve, but stepping back like duh, 
right? Like, right. Like, doesn't that make sense? <laughs> like, yeah. and once again, if you look at this, it's kind of like a taper for a <laughs> lot of athletes in the sense that you're dropping and you're dropping how much training load you're doing and you're doing intensity and big shock, you get fast. But Science I would really love us. to. Yeah. Yeah. If you and, don't take a break and keep training, you keep getting faster. Like, you're right. Well, yeah, exactly. well. <laughs> big shock. <laughs> and if you do more work than a, per, than a group that does less work, you get faster. Wow. It's super crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that this sounds like logical. And I know that some of you that are like just really excited to like you feel like you should take an off season, but you want to do more. Well, now you have scientific evidence to do more is what you're all thinking. Mm -hmm. But context is super, super, super important here. Number one, a kind of a big issue that I find in the Ronestead uh, study is that they didn't randomly assign people to those groups. They let them choose which group they wanted to be in. Mm. And this gets into a big point of an off season. And you, you alluded to this earlier. The people that didn't want to do hard work went into the easy group probably because they felt like they didn't want to do hard work. And they probably felt that way because they had done a lot of it prior or they were just not looking forward to doing that. Whereas the group that decided that they wanted to do the harder work, yeah, they were eager to do that. So as a result, I would question the fact that, or the assumption that's baked in here that these athletes, quote, needed an off season. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in a situation where your motivation is high to continue training, I'm not sure you need an off season. I think it really comes down to like the mental and physical side of things. Um, physically speaking from an endocrine system side of things, if your training is well-structured and you aren't overreaching, uh, which is, you know, common for athletes, if you're adding on extra to your training and doing a little bit too much, which, you know, foreshadowing, we'll get to that later in another question, but you're likely not in a compromised position in terms of like from an endocrine system, endocrine system perspective, meaning that like you're probably, your hormones probably aren't all out of whack. You aren't getting to the point where it's, you know, throwing out, throwing iron levels off the charts and you know, you're dropping out there and those sort of things likely aren't happening if you've been following well-structured training. So physically speaking from that perspective, you're probably not run down in that regard, assuming you've also been adequately nourishing yourself. Big caveat mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. from a musculoskeletal perspective, if like flexibility, mobility, and strength have been neglected and you are experiencing either the beginnings of or in the throes of an overuse injury or something like that, yes, you need an off season. You need time to stop straining strained tissue so that it can then begin the process of healing. Like that is where you absolutely need an off season. If you're dealing with anything that's like a nagging injury or something that's close to an injury, you need time and you need to take it off. But talking about like the balance within our bodies and like the chronic fatigue or anything else, once again, if you're following a structured training plan, you probably don't have to worry about that. It's not like your blood is, you know, quote, trashed and you need to give it time to detox from that just from training. Mm -hmm. That's only happening if you aren't nourishing yourself correctly and you are overtraining and you are under resting. Uh, so assuming that's the case, physically speaking, I only see like an injury for a reason to say that you need an off season from a physical perspective, mm -hmm. but like mentally it's totally different, right? Ivy, like that's where I don't care how physically ready you are. If the idea of training isn't motivating to you, it's not going to, you're just not going to get better in 16 weeks mm -hmm. in 36 weeks or anything else, you know? It's why it's so funny for me to hear you say, yeah, man, like most of us, I get it. You get to your off season. You just want to keep going. No, no, I don't <laughs> want to keep going. Like, I feel like, you know, 
by the time I finally get to that point of it's off season time, I feel so strung out. I feel so cracked. It's usually some big peak moment, like a national championship or some, you know, big a race and the emotional high and then come down that results from that. And then on top of it, like I've probably been traveling and probably get sick. And so yeah, <laughs> like all these things happen and I don't think about, man, I just, I wish I could keep this fitness going. Um, I'm so excited to keep it going. I get pushed to this point of how long can I stretch out this off season? I'm toast. I don't, I don't want to keep training. Like I really need a break, you know? And so that's, yeah. that's the purpose that off season serves for me. And it's hard to look at, you know, what would happen to my fitness, how different would my results be throughout the year if I actually just took a week and then started training again. But in reality, I just can't. Like I'm not that yeah. kind of athlete. Like my work, life, balance and responsibilities feel too heavy for me to just take a week off and feel mentally rejuvenated, to feel mentally rested and to feel motivated to start training again. That's just not yeah. me, you know? My goal is to have a life where a week off can do that. I would love that. That would be like amazing. Mm -hmm. But for, for me, it's like, I feel training always comes at a cost for me. Maybe this is relatable for people listening to this. And sorry if this is like demotivating to some, but training always comes at an opportunity. There's an opportunity cost to it. That's mm -hmm. time I'm not spending with my family or that's time I'm not spending doing other things that, that need to be done, right? I try to schedule my time so that I'm not spending all my time training and so that I can still have some sort of balance that's fluid and always changing, but at least I'm not totally neglecting one area or another. But inherently there are things like, I don't know, like sanding a fence or something like some seasonal project that you have to do, right. That is just sitting there and it's waiting and it's waiting. And those sort of things are like open loops that aren't closed and mentally and emotionally, they weigh very heavily on me. Mm -hmm. And I, and it starts to get to the point where I feel like I get locked into a routine with training mm -hmm. and I just need to break away from that training just to be able to check off some of these boxes, close those loops, finish those things that are weighing heavily on me. And that's one aspect that I always look forward to with an off season is to be able to, to close all those loops in my life that are weighing heavily on me. And this comes back to when you're talking about the mental recovery that you need from training, it could be a change in routine that you just need as well. It could just be the fact that maybe you don't have these external dependencies and these responsibilities, but you've just been doing the same thing. And if it feels stale and unexciting, a change in routine can be like invigorating and you give yourself as much time as you need to then feel like going back to a routine or maybe going back to an improved routine where you've iterated upon that and improved it in one way or another is motivating to you. You take as much time as you need in order to do that. And on the other side too, it's willpower. Like for some of us, it's really, it might be really easy to train every day, but for some people it's, you're going against a lot of your nature or you're going against so many things out like external responsibilities that are calling at you. So it takes a huge amount of willpower. Um, that willpower, if you view, there's a lot of, uh, this is definitely a topic right now. Sarah will be uh, releasing a video very soon on this, which is really cool. A short video on our Instagram channel and YouTube. So check that out. But on whether willpower is viewed as like a finite resource from an individual absolutely has an impact on their ability to withstand 
certain behaviors or avoid certain behaviors that would be detrimental to their training and their performance, everything else. Mm -hmm. So, and it depends on if you are able to perform the mental gymnastics to convince yourself that willpower isn't limited and that you have, because I, I think that it, there's research that shows that that's possible as well. But regardless, it does take a toll on the body to continually make those hard decisions of sacrifice that are oftentimes required with training. So mm -hmm. all of that can get to the point where physically you might be totally fine. You aren't injured. You don't feel like you have an injury coming on. You aren't feeling like you're, you know, fatigued in any sort of like, you know, extraordinary way. And, and you're then, in but theory still, at your peak fitness in many yes. instances when you go into your off season, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like why stop now? Mm -hmm. Well, mentally speaking, you have to keep that in mind. Like it's absolutely involved. You can't just separate yourself physically and mentally. It's inherently entwined. And those two things work together to allow us to be able to be consistent in training. So mentally speaking, you have to be able to give yourself the, the space that you need to regain motivation to train. And that will look different for different people. For some people, it will be a very short amount of time. But I do urge you to not just think of the near-term timeline, but rather to consider the long-term timeline. Many times I'm very motivated for two weeks. And if I just chase that instant motivation, I would probably train myself into the ground. Um, and in 36 weeks, I will be regretting the fact that I didn't just give myself an extra week. Yeah, which is why we cannot omit that element of context to that study in particular. This is a, yes. you know, this is an eight week training period. What happens to all of those athletes, group one and group two, two months later? You know, our seasons aren't eight weeks long. And what happens to those athletes in terms of not just physiologically, right, uh, mentally in terms of motivation and enthusiasm for training further down the road for the group that oh, yeah. did high intensity and for the group that just got to actually chill, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And you have to keep that in mind. We can't be so short-sighted to think that the motivation of today will last forever. Um, it will change and we have to look back in the rear view mirror. And even if we've done something like we had a really good result recently, we got a Strava QOM or we had a really bad result that's motivated us maybe in the other way, we have to look in the rearview mirror beyond that and say, oh, well, how was I feeling after training a really long time coming into this? Was I tired and mentally worn out? So in my mind, mentally speaking, and barring if you have any sort of injury, that takes precedence. That's when you need time off. Barring that, it comes down to mental refreshment, and that's what you really need to take into account and go for. Um, but how long is the question? And again, that will vary. Some people say it depends on it's uh, like correlated to how much you train. If you do a certain amount of hours, you should take a certain amount of time off. And the more you take, the more you train, the more time you should take off. I can't find any sort of scientific research that backs that up at all. Um, in any way, the only thing that I can find is this has been proven across, uh, I mean, the, a massive body of research. So I'm not referencing any specific study, but rather the, the scientific conclusions that have become commonplace as a result of a giant body of research that's ever growing aerobic endurance, you tend to lose that gradually over a 30 day period. And after 30 days, you should expect to have lost like a pretty significant amount of that aerobic endurance anaerobic capacity. So in that case, <coughs> what we're talking about is like your ability to repeat those hard efforts, like do a hard effort and then repeat it. 
if you, in the course of like 18 days, you should expect to lose a significant portion of that. So once again, it's lost a bit quicker. Muscular endurance. So that's like your ability to sustain consistent efforts around 15 days of not training that of like inactivity. And you can expect for that to go away and you'll feel like you'll have to rebuild from some sort of baseline. And then sprint power, that one goes away really quick. That's just in the time course of about five days. Now, the good news is that, you know, one multi-hour aerobic ride per week can help stave off that sort of decline in aerobic endurance. One hour long workout where you have like some 30 second repeats in there could help with maintaining some of your anaerobic capacity. Muscular endurance might just be one sweet spot or threshold workout where you're doing intervals of somewhere above 10 minutes in length. If you're getting into sprint power, you can just do one sprint workout per week and it'll come back really quick. So rather than thinking about, this is what I'm getting at here. I fear taking an off season because like you said, Ivy, I'm probably leaving off at the peak of my fitness and I don't want to drop down. But a four week off season would be one that I would generally consider pretty big. That's like a pretty long amount of time to be off the bike. In most cases, two weeks seems pretty reasonable to me for most people listening to this. Um, it even if you were to take a month off and you were to drop down and lose all that fitness that we just talked about, it can come back pretty quickly, faster than you think. Some people will say that there's a ratio to this, that like you regain it three times slower than you build it or than you lose it. Mm. And I haven't seen any sort of science to recommend or to say that that's the case, because once again, that's highly, highly variable. It totally depends on the individual and how quickly they can rebuild certain types of fitness, their training history, and many other things. So rather than thinking of it in terms of that, just take solace in the fact that even if you take a month off, you can still quickly get back to the point of where you were. There's a study within that study from Ronestad. They looked at those athletes that took time off or that just did the endurance work and then those that did the just that one workout of high intensity. Oh, yeah. And they noted that the athletes that, once again, flawed because of the fact that they could select their own groups, but they noted that the athletes after returning, after their off season, they then went back to normal training. And yes, they observed them after that and they tested them after an additional period of time. And the people that took time off and just did one intense workout a week, they did not drop nearly as much across the board and all the parameters. And they were able to continue and build from there in their training. Whereas the other people that just did endurance work only during that mm -hmm. time off, they started lower and it wasn't like they were able to accelerate and catch back up to those other people. Sure. There's a lot of flaws in this. It's a small study. We're talking 13 people. Who knows? Like, once again, they're self-selecting into groups and they could also be in a situation where they're like super responders and the others are totally not responders and still not motivated. They didn't talk about their, their, you know, their subjective ratings of their motivation. But with that in mind, if I'm taking an off season, I'm totally going to be okay with taking a two week off season. For me, that's about right with that two weeks. So in this case, I was just forced to do it because I'm sick. <laughs> but mm -hmm. for that two weeks, ideally what I would do is I would just ride if I feel like it, but I would make sure I cap myself. Um, I'd wear baggies on my mountain bike because for some reason that triggers me into riding easy. <laughs> that's like a silly trick what? on my mind. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I just chill if I'm wearing baggies, but if I'm wearing Liker, I feel like I can't chill, you know, um, I've got to ride hard. So I'd wear baggies. I would go easy. I would put a tiny chain ring on there to let me just like spin up anything and not have to pedal hard. And I would have fun. And also maybe one time a week, I would let myself go for a short KOM. Hmm. 
And honestly, that's like, that's the sort of thing that might re-spark some motivation, give me a refresh. I wouldn't force myself into a schedule like we were talking about earlier that helps me with training. I would only ride if I feel like it and when I feel like it. And I would cap myself at making them short and just refreshing and fun. Right. So, so that's kind of what I would do. And based on scientific research, I should expect that within a period of, you know, 30 days or something else, or even 60 days, I could probably within 60 days be back to where I was when I took that time off. But instead I'm refreshed. I am excited and I'm eager and I've done all those things. But my main goal with an off season is just to regain motivation. That's the main thing for me. And I think that's a thing that we should think about as athletes when we are considering what our off season should look like. I think instead of thinking about what the gains could look like if I did this or how much harder will it be to come back if I did that, we should instead step back and, you know, take your approach, John, of like, what do I need right now? What do I feel like doing? What would make me excited and motivated and adjust your off season accordingly? However, huge caveat, um, I think you have to be okay with your decision when you get back to that point when training is tough, you know, and, and not have unrealistic expectations or beat yourself up about what you've chosen for your off season, you know? So I urge athletes to, when you decide, I want to take 10 days off, I want to take two weeks off. I urge you during that time to remind yourself daily, if you need to, that, Hey, this is serving a purpose. This is my intention for this time. It's going to make me excited later. I'm going to do what feels good and restful now. Sometimes that'll look like a 30 minute ride or sometimes a KOM, but this is why I'm doing this. And this is why it's important. And then when you do get excited to train again, and it is hard and it's hard to, you know, work back into intensity and you feel like you've lost a ton of fitness, keep reminding yourself of that and be like, you know what, this is why I took this off season. Like I know why I did it and I've told myself why I did it and I know that it's going to help. I am excited to train now because I made this decision and took this off season. So you have to be at peace with what you choose when training gets tough again. Yeah. And maybe the most disastrous thing you could do is come back too early and then over the space of two or three weeks, run out of motivation again and then have to take more time off because <clears throat> training is a momentum-based trajectory that we have. Um, the, the improvements that you get in the adaptations, the training adaptations are compounded when they're layered upon each other over a time course. Meaning that if you were to interrupt that and if you were to build for two weeks and then after that be like, no, I'm not motivated. I'm taking another week or two off and then go again in some respects, it's not dissimilar to taking that whole time off or at least close to that whole time off. So those, you know, the, the little bit of time that you got back into training and you did it too early could really just bite you. So when in doubt, err on the side of giving yourself more time rather than less time and don't panic. You'll be able to come back. Uh, one point that we should probably cover with this too, is that you may find yourself in a situation where you don't need a quote off season timed with the fall with wherever you live or anything else because of the fact that life always gives you breaks with training, whether you like it or not. And if your motivation is high and you don't have an injury and you have that sort of thing, you can totally continue to just like keep on training. Just keep in mind the long time course that might get set up. Uh, is this something that's sustainable for two to three years if you continually do this? Or is this something that, you know, is really going to make it so that you kind of emotionally and mentally become 
feel like you become a slave to the training, you know? So, Mm -hmm. but uh, I know there's parents listening to this right now in particular that are always getting sick from kids and, or people that have jobs that have them give them really unpredictable schedules where it's like, Oh, well, I've got to be gone for a week here and I won't be able to train. That wasn't the plan. And so you're constantly taking these weeks off again, go back to, if you have an injury, take time off. If you need mental refreshment, take time off. Otherwise you can probably keep going. But if you are at some point in your year taking two weeks off, I would suggest doing that. I think that that's a good idea. And have you noticed Ivy pro athletes taking more than two weeks off, like high level athletes? I I personally have, Yeah, but it's not consistent across the board. I am seeing more of that with a lot of the U.S. lifetime and gravel athletes because their race season is just so long that by the time that they're finally done, a week's not enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They need more time. Tom Pidcock and Alessandra Keller they were racing the last mountain bike world cup and Alessandra Keller was just like, and I think, yeah, she was mentioning the fact that she was just like, this is the last race of the season. And I've been out of motivation for a long time Mm. and like, and I'm trying as hard as I can, but I've just, and in this case she was, she had run herself dry and I think that she was sick. Um, perhaps it was her Evie Richards, one of the two there, but, and Lucas Schwartzbauer said the same. He's just like, I just, I don't have the motivation to keep training right now. And I've, so I'm just like running on fumes, you know? So it happens to everybody. Um, and it's okay. And they're taking more time off than, than what you'd see. But again, let your off season be what it needs to, to rekindle motivation. And if it's an injury, give it the time that it needs and get that thing fully solved the injury. Otherwise you're just going to be handicapped for the rest of the season. So if that means taking six weeks off, eight weeks off, whatever else you need, I took six months off for a knee injury once. That's right. Um, And it was so hard to do, but it was what I needed to do because I needed to spend all my energy instead of focused on training. I need to put all that energy into just figuring it out. So I doubt that you'd still be in the sport if you wouldn't have done that. I think if you would have taken a shorter break and just, you know, push through and assumed it would work itself out later. I think you would have like wrecked your own joy for training and for riding. hundred percent. I would have needed surgery for sure on my knees and it would have been the sort of surgery and I probably would have pushed my knees to a point where cycling would have been untenable, you know? So, so yeah, I agree. So that's uh, the off season, the research that exists on the off season. I'll link to the studies down below uh, that I referenced here for this. Um, Seems like there's some science backed recommendations to maybe doing a little bit of, of like intensity during an off season. If it's like two weeks or something, you know, one workout a week, if you're going to extend your off season, do four weeks, five weeks, that's a pretty long off season. But yeah, I'd recommend maybe doing just like, you know, one spicy effort up a, up a climb or something. Oh, on your I can see it rides. now with, so. with my basket bike going to Trader Joe's. I'm like, let's, <laughs> yeah, for sure. let's go. It's yeah. Tuesday. I'm going <laughs> to just yeah. doing one hard effort. <laughs> Push your city bike, right? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah cool. Um, all right. Jason's question. I'm new to road racing. I raced eight times during the 2023 season up here in New York. Loved it. And the last race on our local race circuit was at the end of August. I signed up for Trainer Road because I was struggling with the host of conflicting advice I was getting about winter base or winter zone two training. I just wanted to have one authoritative voice and provider of structure for the next few months leading up to the spring, summer 2024 season. (laughs) Ivy exhale. 
just, yeah, everyone's got something to say. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone can say it and it reach a lot of people these days. Yep. <laughs> it's uh, pros and cons, right? Yeah. Yeah. You just got to wading through it all is pretty tough. Thanks for trusting so, us, Jason. Glad you're with us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love you, Jason. Um, <laughs> Love you. <laughs> here's my question. When I'm on a train of road plan, this is, uh, is this all that I should be doing? If I want to get some group rides in, or if I want to just go for an up-tempo ride like I did this morning and push pace with the people that are out on the local loops with me, am I messing up the plan? Am I putting more stress on my body than I should? And am I setting myself up to have a less than stellar race season if I am doing too much in my build phase? My TSS scores coming into train a row were relatively higher than what is prescribed for me now, and also higher than what is prescribed in my pre-race training block. I don't feel like I ride that much or that hard, but I also don't want to make the mistake of overtraining and that it seems like many people do. Ivy, this is a great question. And one where like, <clears throat> we get accused on the forum, forum folks are rough on us, man, sometimes. Um, but on the forum, they're like, no, train road says you can't do a single pedal stroke outside of your training plan or else it ruins the whole thing. And that is absolutely people taking our advice and pulling it into a different context and not representing it accurately. Um, Do you know what I miss because, about the forum? What's I miss I miss people when folks like that, you know, say things like that, and then and then I miss doxing their workouts, not publicly <laughs> or anything, not publicly. Yeah. Usually, usually in a DM, but I love when they, you know, <laughs> looking at their power profile for a workout that's supposed to look like, you know, a cute little cubes or some, you know, wavy, <laughs> and it looks. Yeah. It looks like radio static, what the visual radio static would be. And I love being, oh, hmm, what's this workout? Is this a Don't workout? Don't get on Ivy's bad side, everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad that we're bringing this up because we've been accused on the forum of this. And, and I want to clarify the fact that we don't believe that you should just <laughs> do your workouts. And if it's one second outside of it, that you should turn it off and not pedal. And if you're not at home, oh, well, you get an Uber and yeah. that's how you get home or something. Like, I don't know. Like, and they, like, no, you should never race. Your only goal is just to raise your FTP. Like, <sighs> we've never once said that. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just want to clarify that. And I think that this question is a great opportunity to do it because it sounds like in this case, Jason's just like me, Ivy, just like you. And probably just like everybody else listening to this, that we train to get faster because being fast on the bike is fun mm-hmm. and being fast on the bike and making that fun. That comes through opportunities of group rides and races mm-hmm. and going for KOMs or just riding fun trails. So I, we get this and this is why we train like individually, this is why we train. And then as a company, we know that this is why you train too. So mm-hmm. I just want to like directly answer the fact that like you adding in additional stuff to your training is not bad. No. However, it can be done in incorrectly or it can be done in ways that do compromise things. Right, Ivy? Yeah. And this is a great question because I feel as though Jason is trying to be mindful of the work that's going to be assigned, right? We know that Jason is on board for structured training and knows that it's you know, what they believe in, what they want to do and what they know will make them faster. And so I I think that that's why Jason is asking this question of like, how do I still make sure I do the work and get to do these fun and honestly important things for racing, which is these group rides and doing unstructured rides. So Jason's coming from the right place and wanting to understand how to do both. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think that the training 
plan or rather any training approach that you take will be most successful when it's one that you can fully complete each week. And so by that, we mean in a training plan or training approach, we mean the structured workouts, right? So Mm -hmm. when Jason says my TSS score is coming in a trainer road, we're relatively higher than what's prescribed for me now and also higher than what was prescribed in my previous training block. Okay. But what was that TSS like, you know, was it structured? And so when we're thinking about how taxing TSS is when you're comparing an unstructured ride with your friends, a group ride or something versus the TSS that comes with a really hard structured workout, to me, they're not comparable. I don't know about you. It's really hard to separate the, when you just look at TSS, it's, it's like, you know, you can have gasoline and you can have water. We can measure both of them with fluid ounces, but that doesn't mean that they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that's like with training, you know, that's probably an extreme example, but when we're talking about training and just riding, both can accumulate TSS. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, I it's, it's expected, honestly, for people to come in and to have lower TSS prescribed for them. If they've just been, if they're trying to look at, you know, okay, so I'm looking at doing this and it's suggesting that I do slightly less TSS than what I was doing before. That's typical because it's just structure. So it's getting in the most bang for your buck for what you get. So it's kind of to be expected, right? Yeah. And I think for, for an athlete like Jason, or, you know, when you're trying to pick your training volume, comparing hour to hour of what you've done unstructured to what you should do in a training plan is not a good idea because of what you just mentioned about, you know, how different they are. Like, for example, when we upload a unstructured group ride into and look at our power profile and sometimes, and we can look at information like, oh, look, I spent 20 minutes total in threshold. Why is this different than doing a threshold workout? Because I spent this much time in here. But when you look at the power and look at, you know, it's just these fleeting moments, that's so different. Can you imagine how like this is so much different than doing a 20 minute threshold effort, right? Yes. And so that's what you're thinking about when comparing unstructured rides and unstructured TSS or hours versus structured workouts. The demand is different and it's specific and it's going to make you faster and going to develop that system specifically and they're just not comparable. Yeah, and I would assume that Jason probably knows this you know, like, but is still like hesitant and asking these sort of questions. And it's probably good, right? That Jason has this like concern about not wanting to overtrain. Mm -hmm. And so since that's Jason's concern, I would say, Jonathan, you might, I don't know if you agree or disagree, but I would say to start low and Mm -hmm. count on lower in volume and count on doing those group rides or, or, you know, if you decide not to do the group ride, if the weather's bad or it's canceled or whatever, you can add a train now or do something on your own, but start with a lower volume than what you think, you know, than hours. So Jason rides Mm -hmm. 10 hours a week right now, let's just say, does that mean you should pick high volume 10 hours? No, start it start at mid volume or even lower and see how it goes and see what it feels like to really nail every single one of those workouts during the week and your unstructured ride. And if at any point, I feel like this is a good approach. If at any point you feel like you're not able to complete the weekly structured workouts, either because of that weekend ride or because of the overall comprehensive load, 
that's the time to reduce your volume because you still want, I still want Jason to go do these group rides. They're fulfilling in so many ways. Like it's good for camaraderie. You can work on, especially if it's a race ride, work on the strategy and the skills. Like these are important. And so I don't think you should cut that out if you feel like you're struggling through workouts. We make tools and resources for you to change your volume throughout your training plan, things like workout alternates so that you can just change the duration and still get the same system and check the same boxes. You don't, it doesn't have to be one or the other for athletes like this, where we just do workouts or we just do group rides, you know? Yeah. I kind of want to compare it to a recipe. So my wife and I, um, we're making coffee cake and the coffee cake is delicious. And to get the coffee cake to come out exactly like the recipe says, follow the recipe and it says that it will be delicious. And guess what? It's delicious. Like you get what you do when you follow the recipe. And with training, it's very similar to that in the sense that if you just do what the training plan calls for, you will get the desired outcome. Mm -hmm. Like you will. But then one time we were cooking it, we decided, you know what, what if we added some sour cream to this coffee cake? As crazy as that sounds, that might be something that could be really good. We added a little bit something to it. It was complimentary. It didn't, you know, it didn't pull it away or do anything that would hurt it. And it actually made it like fluffier and lighter and really delicious. I view it kind of the same thing. Like with your training plan, you have this recipe and if the recipe is absolutely full and you can't fit anything else into it, then of course, like adding something into it's going to cause catastrophe. That coffee cake's going to boil over the sides and it's going to get cooked onto the base of your <laughs> oven mm-hmm. and create one of those oven <laughs> monsters. So, but in your case or in this case, if you have one that allows for some room, like picking a lower volume plan, like Ivy suggested, then you can experiment and add things in. You can find complementary things like that group ride, like races, like something else like that. So I think it's just a smarter approach to always train underneath your means, just like it's a smart approach to spend underneath your means. And then if you do that, then it allows you to be able to absorb or bring in other things um, that and, and still accommodate them without throwing off the balance. So it's... Man, and then you're it, still co- and then you're still stoked on coffee cake because yes <laughs> yes because you just found a way to make it even better and that's the best part you're going out and you're doing these group rides and you're doing these races and it's even more fun and you get to use your fitness so like no just doing the plan is not what we have in mind if you want exactly what the plan is going to give you then yes you should just do that and in some cases there are athletes listening to this that you're okay with really gambling there and saying, I'm going to stack it as full as I can with a mid volume plan, or maybe even a high volume plan. And you have the track record to back this up that you've been able to do this. And you do that and you're able to orchestrate life so that you don't have anything else adding something in that throws you off. If you're able to do that, then yeah, you're going to get a lot from that. But in practically speaking, there are so few athletes that I witness that actually can sustain that. It's, it's perhaps a periodic thing, but even then in almost every situation, I think that we perform better on the bike, i.e. have more fun on the bike when we aren't trying to stack everything so full. Instead, when we give ourselves a bit more room, I think we perform better. So that's really what we get at with this. And, and Jordan, in your case, do those group rides, do that stuff. Just make sure that it's not too much and don't worry about TSS overall. It's just uh, too vague of a metric, you know? 
There's a commonality here between not only these two la- Rob and Jason's questions, but many questions that we receive. Like cyclists be trying to do the most all the time. <laughs> yeah, you know, or extra. Yeah, to a Just fault. like how close to the sun can I fly yeah. before I am engulfed yeah. in flames? You know. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the name of the game, right? Yeah. Uh, like yeah. maximalist, like yeah. Nate's like Nate's personality, as he said all the time. Like, <laughs> Why in the world would I not want the maximum, right? So, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and that's look that pushes us and gets us places, but also it puts us in compromised places. So just pair it with wisdom. Keep that motivation, but pair it with wisdom, and then we find ourselves in the best balance. So, Zach's question. He says on the last podcast, you guys had a good long discussion about having to go as hard as you possibly could on races on single track to enter first, basically deeper than you ever would want to go. Ivy said she couldn't replicate it in training and both Jonathan and Ivy said it hurts. So my question is when I go that hard, which I have done, I often end up feeling nausea and like a blood or bile taste, even when extremely fit, which I have been at times going harder than all out, which is what feels, which is what it feels like sometimes is just so brutal. Do you guys never feel that or are these strategies to mitigate or are there strategies to mitigate it and recover when you can finally get a moment to breathe? Okay. For the Um, record, I try to replicate it in training and okay. And listen, I really do. And it's just like, I can't, it's hard to describe like how fast these women are. And in training, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm practicing starts. Like I'm going hard. And then you actually get in a race and you're like, oh my God, I was not practicing starts at all. Hard's so different. I just want to clear that up. <laughs> Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Right, Ivy? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I try, but it's just not enough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess like, like the tasting blood in in your mouth, like that sort of thing. Ivy, does that happen to you often? Are you one of those people? Yeah. And when I read this question, I was like, I realized that, oh wow, this happened a lot more to me, I think earlier in my career. And now I think that I have just become kind of desensitized to it. Like, I think that maybe mm. it still happens, but I just got used to it. Um, has it happened? Does it happen to you? No, like never. I think really? I've had it once in my whole life and, uh, it does vary per person, but what you said in terms of like, you are accustomed to it, it absolutely could be a taste thing. Cause like what's actually happening is that there's increased pressure on your lungs when you're breathing super hard like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and your red blood cells themselves, uh, can actually, it's kind of crazy, but they can leak and cause hemoglobin to leak, particularly in the alveoli where you have exchange between carbon dioxide. And then you also have the exchange between oxygen. And when that's going on inside your lungs there, that's like a transfer spot. And what can happen is that it can actually leak out hemoglobin. And then you taste that irony taste because you're effectively tasting blood because, through exhaling, it pulls that up and it gets to the point where you can taste it and the receptors pick that up as iron and blood and that's when it happens. So it does happen. Are we killing <laughs> ourselves? <laughs> yeah. Like, is this I good mean, for us? <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess there's, there's probably a bit of both, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, when you say it like that in science talk, I'm like, wow, yeah. this is bad for me. This sport is... <laughs> I mean, yeah, Dangerous. but then again, you're also doing a lot of good stuff for your body. So, yeah, that's true. um, so it, it could just be as simple as the fact that maybe this happens to everybody and just different people taste it differently because taste is highly subjective. And also like you can become accustomed to different tastes and thusly notice them less. So maybe that is the case for certain people. 
It could be the fact that some people just have like more fragile capillary structure as well. And as a result, like there's easier to break and then as a result, release hemoglobin like that. And then I think there's uh, really like enzymes um, manage a lot of like the protection of red blood cells. And perhaps there's like different enzymatic activity for different people. All that goes into maybe like why it's different for everybody. But in the end, it's just, you know, more pressure going on in the lungs. And yeah, that causes it. But it isn't necessarily a sign of something bad unless it's getting to the point where, um, like I'm thinking of the examples of like ultra athletes that end up like coughing up blood. And that's like when you actually have like edema and that's like something that's, that's extremely dangerous and severe and something you have to watch for, but just tasting it and that's it. It doesn't seem to be that that's anything like bad. So yeah. And you just kind of like push through it. The nausea side is something else that could absolutely be brought on by the taste of that. And then that makes someone nauseous, but it also could just be brought on by the fact that your gut isn't digesting food. And as a result, it's feeling upset and you know, you have stomach acid doing its thing. Or you Um, slammed half a gallon of water drink mix 30 seconds before your start. And you're like, whoops, uh, you know, fireball and bacon. Yeah. 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 But I don't think, um, nausea is normally, for me, at least I haven't associated nausea with like a hard start. Have you? Same. Um, and people often say like, I pushed so hard, I got sick and that sort of thing. Like, you know, and made myself sick and people gag and throw up and that, that gagging and throwing up that can be caused by dry mouth. It can be caused by this taste that we're talking about. It can be caused by stomach acid and causing an upset stomach. There's tons of things that could cause that. So, but yeah, I mean, all those systems are working hard. And now your question of like, are the strategies to mitigate it and recover when you can finally get a moment to breathe? I mean, that's why it's hard. (laughs) There might be strategies to mitigate the nausea stuff. Like, I think you should really look at nutrition and timing going into no hot dogs. No hot dogs. (laughs) Yeah. Prior to race. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What timing of what kind of, what kind of stuff you're eating before the start or how much of it did you give yourself time to digest? I think looking at that would help address some of the nausea stuff. Yeah, I agree. But at the same time that, that is, that that's why it's hard. Like it's not just hard on your muscles. Like it's hard on your entire system in unique ways. Mm-hmm. That's why those hard efforts are that way. The one thing that I've always learned is the fact that if I just, you know, if I continue to, I can't continue to push at that effort forever. Like I'll just go slow until the point where I'm completely exhausted and I'll, I will stop. Like my mind will make me stop. Like, so you will end up slowing down and you have to know that it will end up slowing down and you just trust in that. Like, so you keep pushing, it will end up slowing down. You're going to find some sort of like temporarily sustainable stasis, so to speak throughout that race where you can kind of hover and go through you just have to know that it's not going to last forever. And that's why interval training is so helpful for this because it pushes you to those points and then it gives you the sort of rest. Then you can do it again. And then once you've done it again, then you realize, Oh, okay. So those signals are rough and they're hard and they're signs that I did need to rest, but I can actually do it again if I just give myself a little bit. And Mm. that's really powerful and fills you with a lot of confidence to be able to go into a start that's super hard and be like, yeah, I've, I've got, I've like gotten back up from something like this in training and I've been able to keep going. So I just, you know, I mean, train it, continue to do it. You'll probably become desensitized to a lot of these, these things, as long as you're not eating like pickles and hot dogs right before you ride too. like (laughs) Ivy said, you know, that could help. Um, but train it and it'll just become commonplace for you. So, Mm -hmm. but if you're coughing up blood, stop, don't do that. Get some help. (laughs) 
So, <laughs> uh, okay, William's question. Um, he says, at the start of a cross race, I find it difficult to not give up spaces. I think I'm too concerned about not crashing people. I know that they aren't trying to cause a crash, so if I don't leave a space, they will have to back out, but I still find it odd. For my local races, I start on or near the front, so it isn't an issue or something that I can practice at those races, but it does mean that I tend to lose a lot of positions really early in UCI races. Do you have any advice for how to improve my skills whilst in the bunch at the start? This is this is like a really tough one because you struggle with feeling like you're owning your space, but then at the same time, you're like, am I also encroaching Ooh. and being unsafe? You know, it's it's a rough balance. Yeah, and toxic answer would be that like, you know, some like crit bros or something would say is like, owner space, you know, like yeah, yeah. <laughs> push or get pushed, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, honestly crash or be thought. crashed. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to be toxic, but that's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, um, I don't like that approach <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like William yeah, doesn't yours? either. Um, <laughs> so to answer William's question, do you have any advice for how to improve my skills whilst in the bunch at the start? And I think William needs to get more comfortable with the near misses in racing and specifically in starts. When you're fighting position for a position and you might briefly bump bars or your bars might touch someone's thigh and those like near misses and knowing not only what to expect when it happens, but knowing how to save it and stay upright and continue your momentum and keep in mind that you're trying to still race and fight for a space to experience all that and know how to respond and keep racing is the skill that you're looking for. Not how do I command my space out. and like make sure I'm not <laughs> crashing someone out, out and just like, how do I dive bomb a corner and get the spot? And you know, like, yeah, yeah. um, yeah. so I think that's maybe the sensation that William mm. doesn't, that you, it's hard to get in smaller field local races. And I think that that's the thing that will make, William have better starts and be able to fight for that space better is to know that like it's okay. And there's a way to fight for a space where a, a slight contact might happen. And it's okay because this is what will happen if we do that and I'm going to be okay. And the person I'm bumping with is going to be okay because I know what it feels like and I know what to do and how to not overreact, you know? Um, yeah. That's huge point. Huge. Yeah. Point. To not and just like, like doing those sort of drills on grass with friends, like, right? You know, is this is where you want to do them, right, Ivy? Not, exactly. not, not, not <laughs> a start and be like, all right, you try to take me out, <laughs> I'll try to stay up. <laughs> that would yeah. be a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, for so for advice on how to work on it, get some homies to help you with this. Go to like a soft grass area and just start riding slowly and not bumping into each other and bouncing off because what you're trying to reduce is that overcompensation in a start when you're fighting for a spot and you make a little contact to not, I feel like nine times out of 10, when there's a crash at a start, it's because when that contact happens, somebody freaks out and way overcorrects. Yes. And then that's when the big crashes happen. So when you're practicing this, you're practicing on soft grass so that if you mess up and dab and fall down, it's okay. And that's also why you're going slowly. But just to practice not bouncing off one another, but just really gently riding next to each other and making small contacts and even trying to, another sprinter and I, and during a road season did this, would just ride next to each other 
leaning on each other. So just mm-hmm. full contact, hands on hoods, hands touching, shoulders touching, hips touching, and to just practice leaning on each other because it's not it's not necessarily the thing or leaning isn't the, or contacting isn't the skill that needs to be practiced. It's how to get out of it, how to be like, okay, we're not, now we're done contacting. We're done leaning on each other. How do we just continue riding forward without, you know, ricocheting off one another? So these are the things that will help you feel more confident in the, in those starts, knowing how to make clean contact with folks. This is, uh, uh, you have to practice that enough so that you go into a start not thinking about crashing mm-hmm. because you have this like nascent level of comfort that's there. You have to do that because if you are thinking about, I don't want to crash in a start, you are always going to be in this situation where you will be losing spots to everybody else and even putting yourself in a position to crash. Like that's, that's going to happen if you're thinking, I don't want to crash. I'd be curious for those that are listening to this podcast or watching this podcast on our YouTube right now, just let us know. Are you the sort of, when you are in a start is not crashing on your mind or do you not even think about it once the gun goes off? Because I'd be really curious to see. And then if that is the case, if you're the person that, you know, in this case sympathizes with this sort of situation of always being afraid of crashing and not, not knowing how to deal with it. Because I don't think when I, I have had situations where I'm thinking about don't crash in a race and a race terribly. Mm-hmm. And I do crash typically. And then in situations where I'm not thinking about it, I don't crash, but it's not just because it's focused. It's because I have this sort of comfort and skill built up to be able to deal with the situation without having the, you know, experience the sort of fear that, that causes this to come on. So this isn't something that like Ivy said, she's done once. But this is something that's just years and years and years of practice of doing this. Just, you know, this is not like a one-time thing. And if you continually do that, you get to the point where you realize, okay, it's, it's not the end of the world when somebody chops my wheel, when somebody bumps bars with me, when somebody even locks bars with my bars when somebody does anything like that, I can find my way through these sort of situations. Um, and cross might be the best environment to practice this on, um, because it's not crazy wide handlebars like mountain biking. You're chances are the starts aren't super long and it's probably going to be safe onto grass pretty soon or dirt that isn't going to be like hard pavement. It's this sort of place where you want to learn this sort mm-hmm. of thing for sure. But I, I also, I, I, I can't help but think that if you go into a race and you're worried about taking positions from other people, you're also, once again, it's just going to get taken from you. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of like, when I, when you talk about owning your space, what I mean, isn't, physically blocking everybody out there, but convincing yourself that you belong there just as much as everybody else belongs there on that starting line and that you don't have to feel like you're at any sort of disadvantage. You can't just trick yourself into that. Again, it's doing what Ivy said and practicing, but I think that's the big part for me. It's like, just know that you belong there just like you do on your local races. And when you're at the front of the grid, well, you belong there at the UCI race. Nobody belongs there more than you. Mm -hmm. You signed up, you're there. And you are granted to have space just like anybody else and you probably have the skill to be able to maintain it. So I always feel this sort of thing creeping in when I'm racing with people that I perceive as much better than me. And I feel like I don't belong there. And, uh, I have to remind myself that no, I belong here just as much as anybody else. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't is, mean I have to be like reckless to anybody else. It's just, I belong there, you know? Right. Which is a great place to shift your mindset, William, to instead of what feels like now, maybe, 
Like I'm going to try to take this spot and I don't like someone might crash as a result because I'm working my way in here. Like, no, it's not, you don't have to crash someone out or, you know, you're not being dangerous by trying to race for a position, you know? Yeah. And crashes happen and they're a part of racing. And if you moved into a spot, you may do so completely safely, but then the reaction from somebody else causes a crash. That's true. That's okay. That's, that's racing. That's what everybody is signing up for. Nobody is signing up to have a problem-free experience. We all know the inherent risks with signing up. So, you know, as long as you're not doing anything dangerous, don't preemptively put that sort of responsibility on yourself and worry that like you're going to cause something that could hurt somebody. You just own the space and be safe and you'll like, you know, don't be unsafe to other people and it'll be okay. Yeah. So. William's just tender. I can relate to this. Just like, man, I don't want to put anyone out. (laughs) (laughs) I like you, William. Yeah, we like Good luck at your UCI races. Way to go, man. And own your space. Take people out. I'm just joking. Um, Okay, Tom (laughs) says, two quick questions from Tom, and then we'll be wrapped up for this one. If you have questions for this podcast, submit them at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And if you're listening right now, rate this podcast on Spotify. That would be huge. Super helpful. Makes more people find it. Tom says, for the first question, I recently completed a race where a top world tour pro was riding as a, as a draw card for the event. I came across him during the race and noticed that his right foot toe or his right toe was out and left toe was in noticeably asymmetric. For some reason, I was always under the impression that these asymmetries would not really appear at this level and would have some correlation with limiting performance. Is riding style asymmetry something amateurs need to worry about? Or is it just something that you accept at some point? Ivy is a professional here, uh, experiences. I'm sure that you have noticed this across the board. It's not like um, pros are perfect. Yeah. Right? Like Googling what sort of like tibial rotation, if it exists, if I just made that up in my brain. I have or that. Like, do you? I have that. Yeah. 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 My tibia is rotated out. I believe it's 13 degrees. So Whoa. it's my left tibia. And That's I found that out going minor. through like the the knee injury thing. No, it's not. It's uh, no, it's yeah. It's, um, no, it's not. It's my left leg. Yeah. So, but the thing is our bodies are magic. Like they're able to overcome those sort of things and adapt, but none of us are going to look the same. That's Mm -hmm. normal, right? Like I'm thinking of a lot of pro athletes look really different on a bike. Right. And I'm thinking of a few pro pro athletes that, I mean like form and technique and fit stuff, they make really weird decisions because it works for them. And so I think we need to kind of let go of that perspective that if someone is a pro, it means they're some sort of godlike, perfect vision (laughs) of athletics and, and physical form. And they have to be, they must be void, you know, devoid of all sort of deficiencies or weird injuries or structural things, because if they are a pro athlete, like how could they, how could they? But the reality is pro athletes are just like everybody else and have, you know, deficiencies and weird stuff from birth and bone structure stuff and fit stuff that's different. And that's why there's no one size fits all approach that we take to something like a bike fit or position because, because of these differences that folks have, you know? Yep. I just looked up the email. It's six degrees. External okay. rotation. That's what I have. <laughs> That's still so six not degrees. minor. <laughs> my foot was my foot was measured at thirteen degrees, and that was because of like I think a cuboid uh, being out of place or something in my ankle, and mm-hmm. then 
So that was like a, one of the assessments that I got. Um, anyways, yeah, but not minor and it happens. And like you said, no one needs to look the same and pros look different. Pros also make bad choices or they're making the right choices. They're just normal. Like it's, there's nothing. <laughs> so like to your point, Tom, I totally understand thinking that like they should be like on a pedestal and probably a great example, but no, we're all imbalanced. And I think it's really cool that like retool fit systems, for example, don't give you like, this is where your saddle needs to be. And this is where everything needs to be. It's like a range. And it says, yeah, like here's like a range. And then if you're somewhere within that range, it's probably good. Mm-hmm. I like that healthier perspective than something that has to be perfect. All right. Second question. Is there any point warming up for big events where there are hundreds of people at the start? If I warm up and arrive at the start area just before the race, I'm definitely starting at the back and I'm burning matches right from the start to not lose the group. If I don't warm up and I wait in the start area so that I am at the front of the group, I don't have this issue, but instead I'll be starting cold. So any advice is appreciated. I just think that a quality warm up isn't undone because you stand around for 15 or 20 minutes afterwards, you know? Correct. And Great. so research does seem to indicate that, yes, that like, you know, because again, research is talking about markers that it can measure to see the effects of a warm up and then measuring those as they drop off. And yes, as you stop warming up, they do drop off. But we aren't looking to retain exactly what you did. Otherwise you would be warming up and then you'd rip the rollers out from underneath your tires and you'd take off. Right. When the gun goes off. Probably what Tom is trying to do right now. And I think that's a lot of people are fear that that's why they spin nonstop and they do little circles even before they get on, get into the line. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. I think the biggest thing with these sort of events that people need to think of is how is it going to start? If it's like a neutral rollout, and you guys are going to be chilling for 10 minutes, five minutes, you probably don't need to warm up uh, unless your goal is after the neutral rollout, it's just going to go super hard or something. If you know that's the case, then yeah. If it's a sort of race where it has like a long section where everyone is going to get sorted into their position, like a really long climb that allows passing, don't worry about warming up. Like mentally, if you have a routine that you like to stick to that gets you in the zone, yes, do it for that reason. But physically speaking, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're waiting for 15 to 20 minutes, you're the benefit from the warm up. As long as you believe that I just warmed up and it's beneficial, you're going to get the mental benefit from it. So you're going to be okay. And physically speaking, it's not like you cool off completely in the in the, the space of 20 minutes. Yes, there are certain markers that drop down, but it's not like you lose it all. But I, I just always think about, it's not about, for me, it's all about how the race is going to start. And if people are going to line up and make a really long thing and how those two play together. So, but I'd almost always favor if I had to pick, I'd rather line up at the front without a warm up than line up at the back with a warm up in mm-hmm. basically every situation if there's a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. Tom, you don't have to pick one or the other. You can get a solid warm up and also get to the line with plenty of time to not be at the very back. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, cool. Ivy, thanks. This is a good one. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm headed to Bentonville this weekend for a, a USAC uh, clinic. I'm always working on those continuing education units um, for the coaching side of things. Ivy, you're going to be racing not this coming weekend, but the next weekend. Next weekend. Uh, really rad. UCI CX. Yeah. Sweet. Stoked. Cool. Go find Ivy there. Yeah. 
<laughs> uh, if you're in Bentonville, um, maybe I'll see you. It's a tiny place, but I think the whole entire bike industry is there with Big Sugar and Outer Bike and, you know, I'll, but I'll be there for this uh, clinic thing. So but anyways, yeah, if you're there, drop me a line. I think I'm going to be riding early in the mornings before the clinic. So yeah, we like when that's the plan. you guys say hi to us. Please, yeah. Please. Yes, <laughs> not on the start line. Leave me alone on the start line. Just joking. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, thanks everybody. Go to trainerroad.com and sign up if you haven't. We have exciting stuff coming. Uh, we will be updating you on that shortly. Uh, some exciting things. Um, in addition to that, if you haven't used it, people in over 150 countries are using Trainer Road every day, signing up, getting faster. Don't miss out. Use it. It's going to make you faster for your goals. And share this podcast with your friends. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye.